welcome you to Dan Kaminsky's Black Ops of TCPIP 2002, and we appreciate you joining us today. Hello, everyone. My name is Dan Kaminsky. Uh, I would like to thank everyone in attendance. Uh, I know all of your time is valuable, and I appreciate you sharing it with me right now. Um, I'm honored and humbled to be here in Tokyo. Uh, a little bit of history for those of you who might not know me. Uh, this is actually my fifth year speaking with the Black Hat Briefings. I've covered a range of topics. Uh, I have a small piece of code in OpenSSH. I've analyzed a significant amount of the TCPIP stack that interconnects most of the computers in the world now. And uh, I've done some very extensive work on DNS. Uh, in terms of code, probably the software I'm best known for is a tool called ScanRand inside of the, what I call the Paketo Kiretsu. And I apologize if I've mangled the pronunciation of that. Um, ScanRend is a very high-speed network scanner, which after several years I've been revisiting and actually using to audit very, very large trucks of the uh, large spaces on the internet. Uh, I've written several books, or at least co-written, uh, and I'm formerly of Cisco and Avaya. Uh, I actually started security work when I was at my company, and I saw things that could be done better. What was supposed to be a small three-month internship turned into two years at Cisco. And so that's how I got into this space. Um, you know, it really can be one person who notices something and desire and see something that can be fixed who can make a lot of change. And uh, that's what happened at Cisco. And that's, it changed me quite a bit as well. What are we here to do today? I have an extensive list of topics. This is uh, probably one of the more uh, varied subject sets that you'll get out of one of these talks. We have a lot to do over the next 80 minutes. Um, we're going to be talking about the MD5 hash break, MD5 being the data fingerprinting algorithm that uh, a collision of fingerprints was found for uh, late last year. We're going to talk about a new attack that affects a large number of intrusion detection systems uh, based on IP fragmentation. Um, going to go in depth into actual problems with firewalls and intrusion protection systems. I have a My belief is that if a vendor sells you something for it to be a security product, the demand on this security product is Itself, taking security seriously is, is significantly increased because it's why you're buying it. So what I'm providing are the tools to verify or the questions to ask when you're dealing with security vendors. Are you giving us the good things? Um, when you talk about some issues with DNS poisoning that are specifically caused by poor security policies and bad security code. Um, furthermore, I've gotten access to some very high-speed networks and I'm going to discuss some of the results of my analysis. Um, as some experimental work, we're going to also visualize a substantial amount of data. I don't, I don't believe we'll have time for the television part. Let's start with MD5, a tale of two web pages. These two web pages, you can actually go to them right now or write down the URLs at www.sparrow.com slash t1 html and t2 html. One is the web page for Lockheed Martin. The other is the web page for Boeing, both very large aircraft companies in the United States. Clearly, these are not the same web page. 
they look different, but are they? If we actually take the contents of both web page and we pipe it through a tool called MD5SUM, what we see is these two have precisely equivalent MD5 hashes. This is based on the attack work done by Zhang Yun Wang uh, mid last year. And uh, I'm going to tell you guys now how it works. Now, of course, SHA, they are different. I mean, SHA-1, a competing and superior hash algorithm, actually does find significantly different hashes for the page. So, what is going on? Three problems. First of all, we have an unsafe hash. The definition of a cryptographically secure hashing algorithm, a fingerprinting, data fingerprinting system. It is computationally infeasible to find two files with the same hash. Dr. Wang found two files with the same hash. So that's one. Two, uh, hashes degrade very poorly under collision conditions because they're not supposed to collide. When a collision actually does happen, the damage can be quite catastrophic. In mathematical terms, if MD5 of X equals MD5 of Y, then MD5 of X plus Q is going to equal MD5 of Y plus Q. Now, mathematically, if I have two things and they are equivalent, they have the same hash, I can take a block of arbitrary anything and put it on the end and put it on the end of these two things which are different but have the same hash and they will still be the uh, they, they will still be the same the web is very flexible and this is the third problem I don't know if it's a problem the very interesting thing about the web is that it was actually the first major file format HTML where you pretty much put arbitrary garbage and still have something render. This was key to the actual growth of the internet. The fact that people could make web, bad web pages and get something up. What that means though in this context is, is well, we can put arbitrary garbage at the end of an MD5 collision. We can put web pages at the end of an MD5 collision and the web browser will still figure out what to display. And now we'll figure out what to display. Web browsers are programmable. JavaScript provides a full coding environment. Therefore, I have this these two sets of garbage. I can put web pages on. I can have executable or sandboxed executable operations happen inside. So let's take a look at what actually the file looks like. We start with one of the two files that have the same hash. I didn't reverse engineer the uh, the collision code. As far as I know, there's only one other there's only one other public group that's been able to duplicate uh, the the collision work. Um, I just used the hashes she released. And so we start with one of the two. We continue by putting the web pages in the JavaScript array. And then we have code that at the end of the web page goes back, sees which of these garbage sets was because it was uh, was attached at the beginning. And if it's one, we display one. And if it's two, we display two. So that's how you end up with two completely different web pages being able to have the same MD5 hash. Moral of the story is, uh, please, migrate away from MD5. It was decertified by 
pretty much everyone in the crypto community in 96 and was officially decertified by most governments and most standards organizations in 1998. It's 2005. It's about to be 2006. We really need to stop using this algorithm. And actually, I have a tool. It's called Confu. You can get it from my webpage at www. Actually, uh, the Black Hat site will have it for all of you. And it may even be on the CD. I believe it is. Oh, excellent. It is. Uh, and Confu will actually allow you to provide two web pages, and it will do all the creation work for you. And there's actually a paper, MD5, to be considered harmful someday. Uh, to discuss some more of these issues. So this is a fairly well-researched subject. At least I put a lot of energy into it. Moving on to actual packets, which, of course, are what I spend most of my time playing with. IP fragmentation. Fragmentation, an interesting early architectural error that shows how much experimentation was going on while IP was being designed. Um, fragmentation is a very simple and critical thing for a lot of networks. I have a packet to send. The packet is larger than what my physical interface allows me to send. What do I do? I split it into fragments. And each fragment goes across the network and is smaller than the maximum. And then at the end, the fragments can be reassembled. In fact, in fact, on IPv4, routers along the path are allowed to fragment an individual packet. So you could have a packet go five hops, hit an interface that is unable to send the full packet, and then fragment mid-route. Um, why is this a problem? Well, the design of IP is that it's supposed the design of IP is that it's supposed to be stateless. Uh, you're supposed to be able to send out a packet and forget about it. And actually, with fragments, you can. The problem with fragments is when you receive a fragment, you need to keep it around. You need to wait for future fragments to arrive. You now need to have memory, have buffers, search through these buffers. Um, now, we limit how many much resources are being offered by having timers. Only allowed to wait a certain amount of time for these packets, you know, we throw out the fragments, we give up. Um, there's a lot of things that can go wrong with fragments. It's actually been historically a major way of evading intrusion detection system. Uh, Tim Newsham and Tom Pacek in 1998 released a major paper that pretty much wiped out all the vendors in the intrusion detection field in terms of if you wrap your exploits in this, the network tools are blind to what is going on. Um, and in 1999, Doug Song's router actually implemented a lot of these. And, you know, to the security industry's credit, they fixed some, maybe even most of the problems. Um, though we keep seeing new products that ignore old problems. I mean, that's actually a very common thing. Old bugs popping back up because no one tested. These tools allow testing. So there is a new class of attacks that I have discovered, and it is based on what I referred to earlier, timing. Fragments can only stay around a certain amount of time. If the IDS is living on the network and is watching fragments going by because it wants to be able to see and evaluate the same things that the end host is seeing and evaluating, then the IDS has to have the same policies. That's the, the same idea of what the network is telling it. Well, what if it 
doesn't. What if no one actually knew that there were problems with these timers or there could be timers that were different? Different operating systems have different timers. It's yet another way to see what operating system you're talking to. Well, if the IDS is dropping fragments before the host, okay, I just send fragments too slow for the IDS, but fast enough for the host. And now the IDS is blind. That's easy. There's a much more interesting situation if the IDS keeps things around longer, which is very common. Because intrusion detection systems want to be robust. They want to be able to reassemble things even if it's not precisely according to specification. Because, of course, lots of hosts reassemble precisely not according to, re to specification. Um, so they'll sometimes just, well, keep, maybe this fragment will be useful for later. Is there a way this can be used to cause evasion or actually to cause problems on an IDS? And the answer is yes. Um, here's how we do it. If the problem is that the IDS keeps fragments around for too long, the solution is to make the IDS drop fragments. Okay, there are two ways that fragments leave the reassembly queue, that the system no longer stores it. Either A, they aren't reassembled in time, or B, they are reassembled in time. So what we want to do is we want to give the IDS something else to reassemble against, something that causes it to flush out a fragment that it is actually going to need later. If we can do that, we can cause the IDS to get a completely different message than our host. And here's what we're going to do. I call this a temporal IP attack. What we're going to do is we're going to cause an IDS, an intrusion detection system, living on the network. We're going to cause it to see an innocuous request, get slash. Um, but the host itself, well, it's going to see a full SQL injection exploit. And here's how it's going to happen. We are going to notice well, the get slash and the get slash SQL injection have the same beginning. They both begin with get slash. They both have the HTTP headers. So this is a common header. And now we have two payloads. One malicious SQL injection. Or, or what is this? Yeah, the command.exe. One slash. So what we do is we have our two payloads. We send the payload that we want the IDS to see first. The just get slash, this is nice, this is innocent. And we wait. Wait a certain while, the host drops the IDS payload. But the IDS still has it around. And then we send the shared header. Well, the IDS has the header. The IDS has its payload. They assemble, IDSCs get slash. It flushes both. Meanwhile, the host only has a header. And then you send the host the SQL injection and the IDS has nothing to assemble it against because the IDS already dropped the shared header. Um, I kind of made a picture. I'm not great at making pictures, so I do apologize if it's not perfect. But the idea is, is that the host, we said this, this right here is going to be the, uh, this is just get slash. The host drops get slash. It drops the innocuous request, but the IDS still sees it. And then over here, the 
shared header is sent and the IDS reassembles. And this is actually our SQL injection, but the IDS has nothing to assemble it against. That's what this is. It just goes off to infinity. It gives up. There is a problem, and it's actually related to checksums. Um, with the inside of the shared header, there is a TCP checksum. TCP checksum can only be correct, theoretically, for one of those two payloads. If it's correct for get slash, it can't be correct for SQL injection. Um, what do we do? Well, we actually borrow a solution from the embedded world. TCP checksums are very simple. They are very, it is very easy to make a packet have a arbitrary TCP checksum. They're, they're not cryptographically secure. They're not meant to be. They're just for data correction, not for security. So what we can do is we can actually find a HTTP header or just put one in, add it randomly, and have it have correcting data. So the idea is, well, my checksum needs to equal 83. Okay, if I put this byte in this ignored field, the checksum will become 83. This is a common thing that is done in the embedded space. Polymorphic exploits. Um, we can actually. This is this has not been implemented, but this is being this is being brought up as something to be concerned about, and is yet another reason you want to. Te there are very good tools out there for testing your intrusion detection systems, your network products, and seeing whether they handle reassembly correctly. Please test your products, because one thing that's possible is one could imagine a series of packets because different hosts reassemble in different ways. Windows could see a stream of packets, and it could reassemble into a Windows exploit. Linux could see a stream of packets, and it could reassemble into a Linux exploit. So completely blindly, one can use a remote TCP stack to do OS selection on which exploit to implement. It is a problem, and it is solved by actually deploying, or it is managed by deploying detection tools that have robust enough reassembly stacks that they're able to handle all the potential strange things that can go on inside of fragmentation. Now, there are going to be IPS vendors. In fact, there, there are a few IPSs in, that really, that for accidental reasons, actually didn't get this problem. Because what they did was they stored a cache. Every IP packet, every IP packet, and this is constant across fragments, is how you find out that given fragments are part of the same global packet, have IP IDs. If and uh, uh, there are some devices that actually watch these IP IDs, and even though they flush a packet from the reassembly queue or they flush fragments from the reassembly queue, they remember for longer that they had actually dealt with this particular IP ID. So because of this, they say, "Wait a second! I've already reassembled this packet. Why am I about? Why am I seeing another fragment from a packet I've already reassembled?" And then they drop it. That does happen occasionally, um, and. When they drop it, because that, that's the difference in the intrusion protection system that is dropping packets on you. Uh, when they drop these things on you, uh, oh, when they drop it, it's remotely detectable. I can see. I'm sorry, I just wanted to have a, a, a time clock on me. Excellent. There's a 
actual issue with this. And this is kind of fundamental. It's kind of part of the trade-off of using an intrusion protection system. Um, which slide is Oh, okay. So, okay, I'm actually going to rewind for one second here. The attack doesn't work against these systems. Are there other attacks that do? Yes, there are. Um, we can attempt to find ways of sending so many packets and so many streams that it has to flush everything. It even has to flush the it has to flush the IP IDs. Too many fragments because there's limited capacity on any network device, no matter how no matter how significant it is. Um, how can we use the fact that packets are dropped? Well, when packets are dropped, there's lots of different things that will cause an IPS to drop a packet you know, that has a SQL injection, because they're getting more and more intelligent. They're looking at higher and higher level things. They're dynamic rule sets. They monitor your system. They see what they monitor your network. They look at traffic. They decide whether or not they're going to pass it. Um, Different devices see different things. That means we can fingerprint networks. We can actually fingerprint a remote attacker can actually find out what IPS you have. This is probably not fixable. Uh, and this is, again, one of the major reasons why security equipment has to be well written. There is a good amount of research going on now. In fact, I looked at my old slides from 2003. This was two years ago. And what I found was a slide that said, hmm, my scanner, my large-scale network scanner, has some code that attempts to determine how many hops a packet took in order to speak to me. And it looked like 11 or 12, but there was a bug. And the bug was actually caused by something on our home firewall. Our, we had a PIX firewall. And it turned out that it was very easy to remotely detect. I and mean, you see what the bug is, but it was very easy to remotely detect that a PIX was involved. There are a lot of things that have changed since 2003. Tipping Point has a product. It doesn't allow out-of-order TCP segments. Tipping Point assumes that most packets arrive in order, and therefore they're going to ignore the part of the TCP specification that allows TCP packets to arrive out of order. Okay, there are arguments for or against. Very easy to remotely see that tipping point is on a network. You just send it, packets out of order. Checkpoint doesn't like by default DNS packets that have a certain obscure field that is used in DNSSEC. There are devices that will block packets with invalid checksums, packets with invalid options. There are many different options. Packets with out-of-order fragments or segments, invalid ICMP types, invalid codes. You can go all the way up to HTTP. If you start thinking about it, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of different things that an IDS may or may not block. It is very likely that it is possible to precisely identify the products on your networks simply because they are aggressive in blocking traffic. This is a downside of having an active intrusion protection framework. You will leak what you have. But 
on the flip side, you'll block more things. Security is a matter of trade-offs. This is a trade-off that you have to be aware of. And if there is a mechanism called Firewalk by a person named Mike Schiffman. And what he found is that if, you ha if you're analyzing a given firewall, you set your time to live, your packet time, such that each packet gets right before the firewall, and then you see if it can make it one hop after. So you see if an invalid checksum can make it one hop before or one hop after. You see if an invalid type, you see if a SQL injection, you see all these things. Not only is it possible to identify your equipment, it's possible to know precisely where that equipment lives. IPv6 reassembly is interesting. Um, and of course, like I was mentioning earlier, uh, I, I was talking to a few people about this. Uh, Japan has the largest, most aggressive IPv6 implementation in the world. It's very impressive. Um, there has been a lot of work to manage migration from IPv4 to IPv6. And there are... This is not the slides I sent you? I'm just asking. This was hmm. my my apologies. Uh, there seems to have been a mistake with the slides. Um, all right. So, unfortunately, uh, we we'll, we'll manage this at a at a shortly later time. But uh, I'll talk about this in some small amount then. Um, there are many different encapsulation strategies. These strategies can be stacked together. Um, will an IDS or IPS be able to manage how these DACs work? If there is a SQL injection inside of IPv4, IP, to IPv6, to IPv4, to IPv6, for example, what happens? And the, the answer is um, unknown. It's dependent on the product. Beyond that, there's a, there's a problem of what should the IDS do? There are a near infinite, and I'm again very sorry about the slide problem, there are an infinite number of possible ways that IPv6 packets could be encapsulated. There are so many different standards. And the so one possible solution is that an IDS or IPS, actually mostly an IPS, could try. Here's a packet. It's unknown. It's using an unknown encapsulation strategy. I wonder if this particular packet encapsulation strategy will work against this target. Take the strategy, encapsulate some innocuous content, see if you get a reply back. Remember the answer. This, this is basically a just-in-time approach. When you receive something you don't know, an encapsulation you don't know, take the strategy and apply it to something you know will be safe. If it works, now you decapsulate the traffic and you actually know. If this thing is sent, it would get applied in this trip. So, this, this slide is actually there. I'm absolutely positive. The, uh, there is an approach auto-shunning. And uh, the idea is, well, a lot of the complicated attacks are only coming from some small subset of the internet. Even the botnets, even if you have a 200,000 node botnet, 
Okay. So you drop traffic from 200,000 IPs. There's millions of them with millions of customers. We'll just listen to the good guys and accept the rest as an acceptable loss. It's, it's valid business thinking. Um, but not automatically. Um, to understand why automatically blocking IPs that attack the network is a bad idea, um, dig. If you run the command dig, you see this. This is a list, more well, partial because it didn't fit on the same page. This is a list of all the root name servers that are out there. What does an automatically shunning network do if it receives a lot of bad traffic from 198.4104? It blocks that IP. You could cause the network to block all those IPs. And what happens to a network that is no longer communicating with the root servers? It goes off the internet because it can't really translate any names. When you have automatic shunning, you are basically inviting the world to add rules to your firewall table. The world should not be trusted with your firewall rule set. Some things really should require manual uh, interaction. Something more elegant. Spoofing malicious traffic. The idea is that you're faking traffic from sources. Faking traffic from the root servers is very bad and very catastrophic. But First of all, it's not entirely new. People have been whispering about this for years. And it's also far too large scale. How do you make money doing that? That's been a very interesting thing that we've seen happen in the last 18 months. People are working to make a lot more money from these exploits. And simply taking down a network where you can take it down, but then what? You know, you've taken down access for eight hours and they figured it out and they fixed things. No, the, the game is actually to, to get in and stay in and be able to extract funds. Um, I've been investigating DNS poisoning lately because DNS poisoning has been a significant problem and is growing. Uh, the, the fishers are starting to realize, well, if I just make people think I'm their bank, they will give me their password. And the people do because, it, you know, they went to a name, they went to their online bank and it gave them an interface and they went to it. And uh, they even passed through it. They could actually let you bank while they have all your credentials. So they can, you know, after you're done, they can take some money too. Uh, is it possible that there's an interaction? Given networks that implement automatic network shunning, is it possible to poison name server caches and thus selectively hijack network traffic? You're not taking things out. You're taking things over. The general theme is that it is possible on automatically shunning networks to block communication between two name servers. Bad is just a targeted denial of service. You're, people at this ISP are no longer able to go to a bank. Much worse is to realize while, while you have been blocked from communicating with a given server, someone else can forge replies. Well, you can't talk to the real guy, but that doesn't mean someone else can't send you a reply. So what happens if someone else sends a reply? Well, there's a race normally. Request goes out, anyone on the internet can send a reply. 
the real guy has an advantage. First of all, he knows when the request happened. Second of all, he knows all the port information, the transaction IDs. So, in general, even though anyone on the internet could res re respond to a request for an online bank, usually only the real online bank has time to reply. But what if the online bank can't reply? It's like a race, but the other ha the other person has a broken leg. You can spend all the time you want, and you're you're going to win because he's limping. Things can be blocked at either network. It is possible that one could spoof malicious traffic from a client network to the server network. Small ISP is sending a large amount of fake, it's faked, but it looks like some small ISP sending a lot of malicious traffic to a bank. What does the bank do? It runs the numbers, decides it just doesn't need traffic from this small ISP right now, and it automatically blocks it. Okay, the small ISP has a large number of outstanding DNS requests. It has customers. They want to go to the bank. They want to manage their money. And so you're just forging replies. The bank could actually reply, but the bank never gets the requests because the bank is blocking the requests. Um, and it's actually very easy to cause networks to do lookups, by the way. You ask them. Most name servers out there, if you simply, you don't have to be anyone special, if you ask them to look something up for you, they will be helpful and go out and do it. So, you can actually, after you get the network blocked, you say to the real server, hey, go ahead, please go to this online bank. And it will, but it'll fail, but you'll know there's an outstanding request. And now you just flood with a couple thousand replies until you find the one that coincidentally works. The other side is interesting. The other side, the, the flip side attack is not you cause the bank to block the ISP, but the ISP to block the bank. In this scenario, the bank, the ISP actually gets its requests out, and the bank does reply, but the replies are blocked on their way back in. Still the same end result. You know, there's an open session, and you would have to win the race to get in, but the other guy is, isn't participating. But there's a problem. Well, the the DNS server can't reply. How, how could we fake being the DNS server if the DNS server is blocked? The interesting thing about DNS that isn't very well known is that a large number, not large, but some portion of replies do not come from the IP that the request was made to. There are machines, they are multiple hosted, they have multiple interfaces. Very strange things happen implementation-wise. And the solution has been DNS actually doesn't care what IP a reply comes back from. So yes, the situation is everyone else on the internet can pretend to be the online bank, but the online bank can't. Again, automated network shunning. Very, very bad idea. For those who think it's a good idea, I have to be intellectually honest. I have to be fair. There are some mitigating strategies that can be used. One, make sure you can send mail to auto-blocked networks and complain, because mail is dependent on DNS working for MX records. So if you block a network, 
Make sure you can actually communicate with the network through some route to ask them what's going on. Because or else you can just, oh, well, they never replied to us. Well, yeah, they never replied. They couldn't get the message. Um, if possible, make a block stateful. Meaning, if anything on your network intentionally tries to go to one of those 100,000 blocked IPs, it might be a special IP that you shouldn't block, like a root server. So that's another mitigation mechanism. And be very careful about blocking access to any service which might be fished. Uh, I mentioned that because a lot of this stuff is used on services that might be fished. Um, Things that are really big targets really should have manual decision making because you don't want to give attackers a new automated service to make money off of you. So that's the mitigation strategies. Um, complaints. I've received a lot of complaint emails in the last couple of months. It's been for a good cause. I walked into it intentionally, but I've gotten a lot of complaints. So there's a company called Prolexic. I did some work with them a while back on what was called the Opti Internet Mapping Project, which you're going to see some of later tonight, later today. And they have a very high-speed network connection. They have this high-speed network connection because they do uh, DDoS filtering. If you are a company that gets flooded a lot, they will simply receive your traffic for you. They will filter out the noise, and they will send you a nice, clean stream. This is actually very important for online gambling operations uh, because they are a huge target and they have a fair amount of difficulty getting uh, uh, legal assistance. They have to manage their own way. So uh, there's a huge, not only is this a very, very well-hosted net connection, I think 170 gigabit in aggregate, aggregate. Um, they also have most of that bandwidth available unused, so they've given me access to it. Uh, and I've been using that to do very large-scale probes of the Internet DNS infrastructure. I've been working with Mike Schiffman over at Cisco's Critical Infrastructure Assurance Group, and also Sebastian Kramer over at the University of Potsdam. And perhaps some of you. I'm open to suggestions for what to do with this much bandwidth. Um, and as I'm going to be discussing, you might not want to try doing this yourself. Uh, there are issues that needed to be dealt with. So I've been doing extremely large scans. Every IP in the world, every name server in the world, a lot of detail out of them. Um, 100% legitimate packets, I have to be because I'm a good guy. I'm not doing a global penetration test. I owned the world, words I do not want to say while being led off to prison. Um, this is an investigation into the largest cooperative caching architecture on the Internet, and is one that's getting poisoned again. Back in March, Google was hit by a DNS poisoning attack. A fair number of servers started resolving some other IP address. Uh, some fissure, you know, pop-up scheme, spyware, adware. They attacked Google, huge target. Uh, I wanted to know who, you know, what was what happened here. I wanted to measure what the risk was because we can't manage what we can't measure. I wanted to know, and I wanted to get the information out so we could figure how much investment needed to be put into securing the DNS infrastructure. And it turns out there's some work that needs to be done. Thank <laughs> you.
warnings. <laughs> um, do not try this at home. Do not try this in a lab environment. Most, a lot of companies in Japan have very, very high speed net connections. Uh, you might be tempted just from a lab machine to download my code and start these large scans. 90% uh, of the work of this project has been political, has been just getting the, getting things and keep getting people signed up and getting things taken care of. So, well, when I did try this on a uh, on my colo machine, on my co-located server that hosted my web server, um, it was down in about a half hour. The internet has evolved to the point that very large-scale floods do get very quick responses, and that's how it should be. Um, that being said, the status quo is that there's a lot of scanning on the internet. One class A that is completely empty right now receives over five megabytes a second of traffic. Every second, every hour, every day, every week, it's just constant. There are a lot of people out there who are looking. I do not believe that people who are attacking our networks should have better intelligence than we do. So. If the status quo is there are large scans, okay, I'll do some large scans. Things I've had to do in order to make this work, obviously I set up reverse DNS. I had when the when you looked up what the IP was, it would tell you to go to the web server. The web server had a lot of information about me, who I am, what I was doing, links to my papers, and my personal cell phone number. <laughs> there was a lot that uh, there was a lot of headaches that I avoided by making it very easy to get in touch with me. That's the advantage of being a good guy. You don't need to hide who you are. I've got Aaron updated. Aaron is the internet registry for names. And uh, when people did a who is to see well, what IP range is this, it's very difficult to get things into Aaron. You need some serious, you, you need your ISP to be very cooperative and to have some influence. When you did a who is, Dan Kaminsky Security Research came up. Immediate link to my email address, immediate comments on what was going on. This was also very helpful in mitigating complaints. Um, still, large-scale analysis does not go unnoticed, does not go uninvestigated. Um, a lot of a lot of explaining myself to uh, administrators and to people at various military agencies because they want to know why their networks are being probed. The networks are being probed by everything. Uh, I got some very good replies. Thank you for the information. We will see you in Vegas. They just bought me a beer. <laughs> Um, some some early results. Uh, I wanted to know how many people were hit by the Google problem. The Google problem seemed obscure. It was a condition where Microsoft had to Microsoft name server had to be in an automated forwarding mode to bind version four or bind version eight. That was the necessary scenario. So how do we go about doing this? Okay, well. Step one, identify all name servers on the internet. Uh, I needed a legitimate lookup that worked on every normal name server, but would not cause the server to go out and ask someone else. So I needed a name that every server could resolve. The name I looked up was um, the reverse IP for 127.001. Figured every name server knew about localhost. 99% of the time, I was right. And not only did I get localhost, I mean, I just got localhost as the answer. Surprising number of servers, though, went ahead and said not only localhost, but 
localhost.foo.com. They would have a small bit of information leakage about their particular network. There were some other things, but I can't talk about them publicly. Um, now I wanted to go about which ones would... Uh, I need to A, I found all the servers. B, I need to find which ones are related to which other ones. DNS is a cooperative cache where servers communicate with one another. Well, this machine doesn't know, so I'll go to the root and find out who knows more, and then I'll go to it and find out who knows more and go to it and eventually route to the answer. So servers traverse the hierarchy to find the answer to a particular name lookup. Look, here's a name, give me a number. This is how we do the interrelationship mapping. This is how we find out who is actually communicating. So, oh, I should clarify. That hierarchical approach where you go to the roots and then go to the next box and go to the next machine, that, in a fair number of networks, in a surprising number of networks, you actually have clusters of name servers that are arranged in a hierarchy. So if one server doesn't know, it asks another cache. If another server doesn't know, it asks another cache. And sometimes they're set up as a mesh, sometimes they're set up in a tree, but servers, instead of going straight all the way out onto the internet, will sometimes ask other hosts on their local network, or will ask their ISP, ISP's name server. Uh, this is because DNS will fail catastrophically. Uh, there's fun words to say. Uh, DNS will work for a certain number of clients, and then as you exceed those number of clients, it will start failing requests out of you know, fairly suddenly. So, to provide slack capacity, spare capacity, you have these clusters set up. It's just like any other service. So, how do we map out who is actually in these in these hierarchies and in, in these? private clusters, because what we saw from the data was when you have these clusters where Microsoft connects to bind, there is a problem. Here's a slow way. You recursively request. So I ask a server, please look up some information for me. Please go out onto the internet or go out and do whatever you want and look up this name. And I know it's a name that the server doesn't already have because it's a random name. It's on, you know, it's going to resolve to something because I can make servers that respond to anything. But I have it look up something that isn't in its cache. And I look it up against one server. Then I ask everyone else non-recursively, I say, if you, there's a, it is possible in DNS to request information that if you already have it in your cache, please send it to me. But if not, no, no, that's okay. I will go get it elsewhere. So the first person, you say, go out and get me this data. Everyone else, you say, tell me if you already know it. Well, what this does is, if I ask Bob to look up some information, and then Sally ends up knowing it, I know Bob and Sally were talking. The problem is, is that this is this does not scale. If I have a thousand machines, I need to do a thousand recursive lookups for different names, and then for each of those names, I need to do a thousand uh, 
you know, non-recursive, well, do you know about this? Do you know about this? Do you know about this? And the, uh, the end result is it's, it's n squared mathematically. It takes a million requests to figure out the interrelationships between 1,000 hosts. This does not scale to the size of the internet. So I needed another solution. A faster solution is to notice that DNS, in DNS, the names come with a timer. When you get data back, it tells you how long you should cache that information for. Because there is a risk. What if you cache data that is out of date, and right when it's about to leave one server because it's out of date, it is created anew fresh on another server? That data could just pass around forever. So the solution was they put a timer that says when the first host gets it, 600 seconds store this information. 10 seconds later, another machine requests that out of the cache. That host says, only store this for 590 seconds. Store it for 10 less seconds. Well, theoretically, all servers would expire their caches at the same time. Because if you got the data long after the, uh, long after the initial query, your time, the time to live, of that data will be less, it will be decremented. Well, we can use that. We can ask everybody, recursively, everyone on this list, please go out and look up some information for me. When they give me the replies, they can give me one of two things. They can give me fresh information. Ah, yes, here's the information you were looking for, 600 seconds. Or they can say, oh, here's the information you're looking for. 500 seconds. Well, there's a 100 second difference. Who was I scanning a 100 seconds ago? Because that's the person's information who I'm getting. This actually does scale. You can ask a million, you can send a million requests to a million servers, and you will either get that fresh data, meaning they went out to the real machine, or you will get stale data. They went out, and uh, you can see who, you, you can, uh, you can see based on who you were scanning at that time. Now you have single second resolution. If you want to go ahead and scan more than one host a second, okay, so you randomize the order in which you do floods. And it's like, well, across 10, you know, across 10 of these floods, we randomize the order, and the only machine that was in the right place at the right time in every one is this, is this particular one. So here is this interrelationship between server A and server B. Um, there are some issues. A couple hosts have straight, a couple hosts just ignore time entirely. They do things which is very wrong for reasons discussed. Um, some hosts do not decrement time, which is also very, very wrong. One of the things you find when you audit the world is uh, there are, there's a lot of broken code out there. I know this, this shouldn't come as a complete surprise, but uh, there's a lot of broken code. So what I ended up actually doing was uh, I just looked who came to me to do, a look, to do requests. So I register a name. Docspera.com. I do lookups against Docspera.com from random name servers. I look to see who comes to Docspera.com's name server to do a given request. So, if uh, 
If I ask one server to do a lookup and another one comes to me, I know the second one was asked to do something by the first one. It's really simple. It's actually a lot simpler than the thing I just told you, but it actually worked and worked quite well. Um, and so the, uh, the, the oh, I I did forget to mention one thing. In the lookup that was done, when I went ahead and looked, did a lookup in docsthera.com, I encoded the IP address of the server that I originally communicated with. If I got a packet from five six. If I got a packet from five dot six dot seven dot eight, that was looking for the name one dash two dot dash three dot four dot dot com or dot madness dot net as it says up there. Well, I know there's a relationship. So the actual cookies, the actual name that was being looked up, encoded the original site that I was looking, for, the original IP address I was talking to. What did I find? Two and a half million verified name servers, uh, up to nine million possible ones, but I ended up centering my focus on servers that were communicating recursively and servers that I was consistently getting replies from. Uh, a good chunk of the of the uh, of the nine million were questionably stable. Sometimes they were up, sometimes they weren't, and. Uh, so I decided, here is a set of servers that always replies to me. Two and a half million. This will be our analysis sample. I ran FPDNS on all 2.5 million servers. FPDNS is a tool not written by me, written by Roy Arends, that actually divines the, uh, discovers the particular server being used. So I was able to identify from each IP, here's a Microsoft box, here's a Windows box, and so on. Um, and then I uh, just correlated. Well, we we know all the servers, we know what they're running, and we know what the interrelationships are. Find all servers that are forwarding to bind date of, and bind, that is defined very publicly as an unsafe configuration. Two hundred and thirty thousand servers were forwarding to bind date. I had no idea. Almost that's almost ten percent of the sample DNS network. There were thirteen thousand Windows servers that were forwarding to Bindate. Windows does not have a, a massive deployment of name servers out there, as far as I know. Um, but thirteen thousand machines with the precise configuration that allowed Google to be taken over. Um, that's a problem, and that's something that eventually I... So, where the phase where I'm at now is that I do need to do notification to all of these administrators. What is being worked on is, um, like I said, it is impossible to be successful and not be aware of the politics of things. There are a lot of administrators who did not notice the scans. If I inform them that I found this information, especially if there are um, internal negative reactions, I may have some very angry administrators. Now, if only 0.1% of the administrators are angry enough to actually cause me significant problems, well, I'm talking about tens to hundreds of thousands of places. 0.1% can give me a very, very difficult time. So I'm actually working with, with ISP groups to figure out how we actually do the official notification. Now that we've discovered that there's so many problems, now the phase is we have to build the systems to do the notifications. And that's work in progress, and I'm very open to anyone here working with us on that.
This mechanism, this model of scanning the networks, you know, scanning everything. I had an idea. The normal way that exploits are found, and I'm not an exploit person, but the normal way that exploits are found is what is this particular product vulnerable to? I had an idea. If you look at the DNS specification, there are things that you could imagine someone might make an error about. Specifically, you know, it'll be in a future slide, I'll tell what it was. But the idea was, you know, is there any way that given an idea, given an understanding, a psychological understanding of programmers, could I scan networks looking to see if anyone made a particular error? And the answer was, yeah. There's a potential fault in recursion. There is a condition that someone might do. There is identifying material inside of a DNS packet, the transaction ID specifically. And it, its major purpose is to validate that a reply, to link replies and requests. So, okay, you know, you're giving me a reply, you're saying you're the online bank, and you, know, you're, you have the information. Okay, I gave you this cookie, I gave you this number, you're going to give that number back to me. The problem is working with that as a forwarder, as a recursive host, requires you to... Okay, oh, so as an attacker, I must not know when you make a request what that number was. Or else I cause you to make a request, I send the reply back to you with the number that you used, and now I've taken over part of your cache. It's the idea of if I can ask anyone to do something for me, and he goes out and does it, and I know precisely how to give him an answer that will work, and he will remember that answer, I can make him believe anything. That, that is the fundamental flaw. One could imagine that a programmer might say, huh, if someone sends me a request packet, I will treat it as a blob of data. I don't know what it is, I will just send it out to the server, and then whatever I get back, I will treat it as another blob, and I will give it to the person who made the original request. And thus, I've built a DNS server in a day. Um, the problem is that if you do that, like I said, attackers can predict what your transaction ID is going to be. I wanted to know if anyone was doing this. And so I just looked through my logs. I was using a fixed transaction number because I had a client that didn't care. So when I looked through my logs, what did I find? 110 hosts with this problem. It was an 80, the, the most common was an ADSL vendor had a modem that was doing this and it was caching and it was forwarding the data. And given that this was an exploit found never having any idea that this product existed and actually never intentionally seeking to find this out, I just looked at my packet logs that I had for other reasons. Uh, this is an interesting approach that uh, well, I hadn't used elsewhere or seen elsewhere. Um, speaking, there's an interesting thing about source ports. The transaction ID is not the only part, the only randomly varying number in a DNS query. You're supposed to also have the UDP source port, the service number identifying for the, the client service. You're, you're supposed to have that change as well. 
um, because the transaction ID is only 16 bits long. So there's only 65,000 possibilities. Uh, so you're supposed to have the source port change as well. Well, does it? Let's look at the data. What does the data tell us? It, it turns out, and I had this all in the SQL database, it turns out by far the most common source port is 32,768. When a name server does a lookup, most commonly it does it from 32768. On the fourth most common is 32769. And then a little above that we have uh, 32770. So, there are a large number of servers out there that have completely predictable source ports. They're always, either they always use the same one, the ones that are using 53, or when they need multiple sockets, they use an incrementing number. In fact, you can probably measure the amount of traffic on a name server remotely just by seeing what port they're sending you their queries from. So, uh, that entropy source in general is not very useful. Is there anything else? Uh, oh. Speaking of security equipment not necessarily doing the right thing. Okay. Uh, there are... There is a thing called reverse DNS. Uh, reverse DNS says, okay, given a IP address, give me a name that maps to it. A lot of forensics people, a lot of forensic software, a lot of servers, when they receive traffic they're curious about, they will go and do a lookup and find out the name that is associated with that IP address. Normally, that name is hosted somewhere where, you know, random users can't change it. This is not a normal net connection that I have. So I control my own reverse DNS as well. That's what I showed you earlier. It said C port 80. So I saw 38,000 name servers that were investigating me, that were trying to figure out things about what I was doing, that I'm sure were thinking they were being stealthy or I'm sure they did not think they were doing anything that could have a security implication. I received traffic from one class A that that's the only packet I've ever seen from that class A. So as a small note to people in here that work in forensics, um, your reverse DNS can be seen. Just be aware of that. And not only seen, but actually I, I know where, no, who's looking. Um, as long as we're validating the infrastructure, let me see how much time I have. Okay. As long as we're validating the entire internet infrastructure, what if we could actually start capturing full pictures of how much, of how all servers are interrelated? How difficult would that be? Well, um, on IPv4, it's actually not difficult using my tool called ScanRand. ScanRand is a stateless scanner. It has split, is split into two parts. One part simply floods out traffic, puts in small amounts of information to identify some state, but the, the, the information is in the packet itself and is returned on the replies. So one part sends out a huge amount, the other part receives replies. Um, the mechanism for rapidly mapping the infrastructure is, well, here I have a very high-speed net connection, and I have a very high-speed scanner. Let's send it out. How long would it take? Um, 
It turns out you can actually scan the entire IPv4 internet and get a full map of routes from a single point, at least, in a day. In one day, you can get a complete picture of the entire existing IPv4 internet. And in fact, that picture looks like this. So it's kind of funny. This was actually done a while ago, the, the, the generation of this. Um, what is new is now there's a full OpenGL graphing of this data. Uh, it actually got on the side of a museum. It was like 50 years, I don't know, 20 meters by 20 meters. So uh, fly around the internet. We can finally do it. Oh, Dan, put that down. Uh -huh. He wants to take a picture. Okay. Here. How's that? That's what we work on, people. What are the white peaks? Oh, I, so one of the things I added was hosts that are connected to large numbers of systems, I wanted to show up higher. So like a core router. This is very experimental work that I'm doing, actually. So right now, this is just something I'm showing to show this is the output of the data. It is a uh, arguably more meaningful than just lines and lines of, uh, of, of packet traces. So. The colors? The colors refer to uh, IP uh, country. I believe uh, green is Asia, blue is the U.S., white was actually unknown at the time. This data comes from 2003, this particular data set, um, and was collected over six weeks. So six at the time, that was actually very fast. Uh, the process has been sped up now where we can do this kind of analysis in a day. And I'm actually documenting in here how, how you actually do that. So, okay, cool. Keep, yeah. So trying to be conscious of uh, available time as well. So how do we do this? Well, first, we need to uh, to do this efficiently. We actually shouldn't trade. We have to do trace routes. Standard trace route, you increase your TTL by one for every hop that you want to go. Obviously, you're subject to the same limitations of trace route that it won't get a perfect vision of the network. Um, you don't want to do a trace route to every possible IP address because there's a lot of empty space. So the first level optimization is only send a packet to a subnet if there's at least one host that we found on it. And uh, so I created a list of subnets that had at least one host. Second step was setting a, a, a maximum TTL that I was going to work from. Uh, I set it to 10, with the idea being that I could go back and if I hadn't reached the host after 10 attempts, because it's actually just sending. It's not, oh, I didn't get there yet, I'll send another packet. It's, okay, I'm just send out all 10 hops, get information on them all, and I'll, I'll figure things out later. So if I didn't get there by 10, I would later on send more. Uh, you run this code, 
this command particularly, and uh, you end up with data you can pipe directly into SQL. It turns out that just generating SQL is the easiest way you can have command line tools intersect with the database. There's some very good APIs, they're a little complicated. SQL is easy. And of course you have to, you do have to do some throttling because you don't want to override networks. Uh, given that, all you do is, so you, ScanRand hands you this IP is, you know, this IP is this hop after this many hop, you know, this host is along the route to this other host and is this many hops away. It took us five hops to get information that this guy, this particular machine is along the route. This SQL reorders the data so you're actually able to to render it you know, from unordered data back into pure normal traces. Then, uh, for each line in the massive trace route, if the destination of the previous line is the same as the next one, this, if, I'm going to skip this section. If you're interested in the actual code I use to do this, send me an email. This gets somewhat complicated to explain, and uh, I'll be nice. There are some interesting things we can do. Um, I said earlier that the trace routes came from the same, they, they are a view of the network from a single point. It turns out what you can do is you can have senders all across the internet. And they're all spoofing their IP as this central collection node. So you've done all the political work to get a centralized collection node to be able to receive traffic. You don't actually need to send your traffic from that node. So you can say, here's the net as it appears from Asia, here's the net as it appears from the US, here's Cogent, here's level three, here's this, here's that, and merge it all together and have it come to a single point that's been politically enabled to do this kind of work. And thus you're able to have you know, complete network visibility. So that's an interesting thing. Um, Gap filling, it's very easy to identify that certain areas of your data had gaps. Obviously, you identify the gaps and try to fill them in. Uh, source routing can be a possible add-on. Uh, and you graph the results. Some things I do need. This slide is actually probably not in there if the other one wasn't. Uh, I would be doing IPv6, but I do not have a similarly set up machine on the IPv6 net. Uh, when I do, things will get interesting. Uh, for IPv4, I did simple network saturation. You know, the IP space is small enough to brute force through. For IPv6, this is obviously not an option. So, for IPv6, the best ways to get information are A, DNS will give you destinations, and B, trace route will give you hops, and then you scan around the hops. So, you know, it's very important to, to flesh out what part of the space actually is routable. And there, there, there is potential for using source routing in the IPv6 realm as well. Uh, Seeing the data in real time, the graph that I showed you, is, is interesting, and it's cool, but can we see live data? There is actually a fairly uh, obscure field in databases that is, deals not with known information, but actually streams. I, have, I would like to be able to monitor 
live data streams and live information as it goes by. Is it possible to monitor and graph that information? And uh, what I tracked down was software called the Boost Graph Library, which is probably the best graph library in the public space for very, very large-scale graphs, kind of like what you saw earlier. Um, Dan Greger, one of the authors of the BGL, has been assisting me with allowing the traceroute data that you saw and actually any arbitrary linked information to be, uh, to, to, to be rendered in a graphical form. So, this is what I will show you. This is actually going to be a trace of traffic on, uh, I think this is going to work. There have been things done like this before. Actually, let's see if I can make it a little bit more visible. Yeah, there it goes. So, using the Boost Graph Library, these are interrelationships as visualized on a fairly small network. Yeah, as, as if one host talks to another host, a link is created. And this is, say, actually that one doesn't work. This is actually traffic as it's emanating from a from a large scale trace route. There it goes. And of course, what you see is that there are cores which are just large, massive numbers of interrelations, and you know there are machines that are just kind of floating out there. They're their own little islands. Now you might say to me, and of course this is a legitimate reply. You know, so it's pretty, it's kind of useless. Well, believe it or not, I did actually find out something I didn't know from, from the graphical rendering. And that's, um, there's at least one name server that has a tremendous number of hosts that are, uh, that are, are connecting through it. And, and I actually didn't know that. So, um, ask me later. So, this is just very, very early work. Why am I doing it? Because there's very little that's going on in the security visualization world. Uh, it looks like an unsolvable problem. I like unsolvable problems. So, um, why use graphs? They're more than pretty pictures. Our, our, our brains have a lot that's dedicated towards visual understanding. So, I'd like someday to be able to visually understand security data. Um, Interestingly enough, the, for the future of large-scale scanning, uh, and th this gets pretty far off into what, this may be a talk next year, for example. This, this probably will be discussed uh, the next time I come out here. Uh, ScanRand is not an intelligent scanner in terms of bandwidth. It will just flood things. There have been instances on some corporate networks where it's flooded things off networks. So. What we actually need is some understanding, and this is how it all comes together. What we need is some understanding when we send traffic to the entire internet, what is the impact going to be upon the network? Will this packet make it given what we know of available bandwidth across the routes? Graphs are built to do this. They are the data structure that is able to tell you, given this source and this destination, what is the route and what are the impacts along the route. So all the graphical stuff up there that's pretty, what's significant is that it's in an addressable data structure that 
most that we can appears to be able to scale to the size of the net, or at least we can start working on it such that it will. Once we're able to do that, we can actually order out our our large scale scans so that we can saturate our local interface, but not saturate, not overload anything remotely. This graph aware scanning uh, will be a very interesting add-on to uh, monitoring and managing very, very large networks. So that's something I'm working on. Um, and uh, now I'm not going to do the video over DNS demo, but just as a comment, uh, yes, it is possible to do video over DNS. So uh, if you have a if you have a network where you are attempting to censor the outgoing data, such that people are unable to. You, if you are attempting to suppress outbound traffic of any sort from your network, you want to make sure data doesn't leak. Make sure people aren't able to leak data out over DNS. Because what I showed last year was you can move arbitrary network connectivity, you can move audio, and you can actually move video. So uh, thank you so much, and I'm very open for questions. So, how did governments respond to your work? Uh, actually, oh, uh, microphone is needed. Oh, okay. Did you notice a different response based on different governments? For, uh, was the response to your scanning sort of universal no matter where? You were scanning. Uh, the the American government communicated with me in greater depth than uh, any non-American government. I did receive communications from several uh, European. Don't believe any Asian governments. I did receive some uh, several communications from Japanese administrators. Uh, many people did want to know uh, what was going on, and uh, the responses were very were fairly positive. Once I gave it, once 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 I explained. There, there were some there, there was some confusion originally because usually in a in an investigation process places aren't used to seeing a cell phone number pop up. Uh, I did end up talking specifically with U.S. Search and they they, they looked the deepest into it and uh, it's been uh, at least in a in a short term sense it's it's on their okay list so that that actually helped me a lot as well. Are there any other questions? All right, everyone. Thank you. So oh. I could ask you questions all day. Then you <laughs> up to the mic. Come on, guys. Okay, so this is a question basically on the first half of your talk, uh -huh. which is dealing with fragmentation to evade IDS systems. And I'm noticing more and more operating systems sort of by default just drop fragmented packets. So how much of what you saw breaks or what would be the impact of just dropping all fragmented packets? Um, fragmentation is actually needed. Uh, a lot of it because of VPNs. VPNs are shrinking the available MTU from what we're used to to because all VPN systems have some degree of overhead on a per packet basis. So, so v, VPNs to some, not entirely uh, zero, 
there, there would be interference from traffic coming from VPNs. So that's actually problem one. Ultimately, okay, if you don't support IP fragmentation, you need to successfully support path MTU discovery. The ability to discover along a path what the largest packet that can move is. Um, because of security constraints, a surprising number of networks block all ICMP. Path MTU discovery is dependent on ICMP. If you are neither able to path MTU discover or able to use IP fragmentation, you lose. Like uh, you, in, entire ranges of the internet can become silently inaccessible. And this has happened. This has happened, and sometimes it goes on for long periods of time before it's discovered why particular subnets just cannot be reached from other subnets. So, as security people, and this this is a taking off my security hat, or at least realizing I have both a security hat and a network engineer hat, uh, we have to realize making security recommendations that cause entire subnets to disappear from the network is a bad thing. We need to be aware what the network implications are of everything that we request. That means also, you know, IPS designs can very often become single points of failure. When you're, spec when you're specking out intrusion protection systems, make sure, particularly for financial reasons, you're not setting up a network such that if the, if the intrusion protection system goes down, you have no net. And that has been, that's been found as well. Being responsible in the network sense is, is critical for getting buy-in, for getting, for bringing everyone together to build a secure network. So, that's what we're, that's why we do this. To make things secure, but they still need to work. Go ahead. We have no time? All right. Sorry, quick question on finding, uh, I guess, illicit traffic at, say, over port 80 or 53 that people are trying to sort of secret out of the network. I guess you start with size. Uh, but beyond that, what strategies can you offer us uh, as far as uh, looking for that traffic or finding it uh, that you know may contain covert channels or may contain uh, information that somebody's trying to take from your network illegally? I need about a hundred gigs of DNS traffic, and then I will be building and silently releasing to various people, a tool that will find tunnels that... I am building a tunnel detector that I am unable to break. A DNS tunnel? DNS tunnel detector. Uh, the, the, the short answer... The, the answer is you need to do very deep protocol inspection and do correlation across large numbers of packets. If you do not do that, you will not find DNS tunnels. But, or you will not find DNS tunnels that I might make. I believe it is feasible to make a tunnel detector I am unable to break. Now, there may be people who can make tunnels better than I can, probably are, but it's a pretty high bar. I want to actually answer you in more depth, but I want to keep it the answer actually somewhat quiet. So talk to me after. And any of you, any other of you who would like to talk about DNS tunnel detection and uh, can potentially provide DNS logs, let me know.
All right, we are out of time. Thank you so much.